Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, chapter number one, and we're going to begin our study in the book of Hebrews this morning. In Hebrews, some have compared Hebrews to the book of Romans, and this book is of such importance, but sadly, it is greatly ignored. Many avoid the book of Hebrews because of its depth. Uh, Many avoid the book of Hebrews because of its warnings, and there are several warnings that we'll see as we go through this book over the course of the next, I'm sure, several months, if not the whole year. This is one of those that you cannot necessarily give a glancing view uh, as you go through the book of Hebrews. It almost demands a verse-by-verse, portion-by-portion study. And so we're, we're going to get into this as best we can, but let's, let's read, for context sake, we're going to read the first four verses of the book of Hebrews. Uh, but we're really going to focus in on the first two. Now let's read verse, uh, the verse, first four verses, please. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, and being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Thank you. You may be seated. As we get into this book, I want to try to do the best that I can this morning to give you sort of the introduction to the book, and then we're going to focus in on one main aspect, that aspect being what we find in verse number two, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Now, it's important for us to notice uh, some of the things that are taking place in the book of Hebrews of a truth. There are many rather complex truths in this and complex Uh, uh, studies in this, and one would be a fool to believe that they have mastered the book of Hebrews by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, And so I do not come before you as a person who believes that they have mastered the book of Hebrews. I'm just going to bring to you the best that I can in my uh, meager attempt uh, to impart some of what the Lord has shown me in my studies. However, the importance uh, of this book does demand a careful study. And so as we read through the first four verses there with emphasis on two, the first portion of verse two, before I go any further, I feel it's important to gain a basic understanding of the book of Hebrews. And so we're going to give just a a bit of an overview here, and this will prayerfully set the appetite for for weeks to come, uh, what we're going to be looking at. Number one, I want to go ahead and rip the Band-Aid off and uh, get it out in the open that the authorship of the book of Hebrews is in question. Uh, If you've been around me long enough to know the way that I try to uh, encourage people how to study the Word of God, one of the first things I want them to do is find out who's writing the book and then to whom they are writing, and this is important for us to understand. Uh, If you were to uh, study the different 
uh, uh, books of the Bible, you'd find that uh, people such as Peter, when he's writing, he's, Peter himself was a little impetuous. Uh, he sometimes uh, was rash, and he was very direct and to the point. And uh, so when you read Peter's writings, you're going to find that kind of coming out. John, referred to as John the Beloved, when you read his uh, writings, you're going to kind of find that caution, that uh, uh, that compassion kind of oozing through the pages. Uh, Matthew, he was a tax collector, a numbers geek, so to speak, and uh, he was very detail-oriented. This is why you read the book of Martha and compare, Martha, Mark and compare it to the book of Matthew, you're going to find Mark is kind of like an action uh, movie. You know, it just jumps from one scene, one car chase to the next, where Matthew is more like a melodrama, and it gives you a lot of detail. Well, this is something that you would expect from someone who is very detailed-oriented. When you read Luke, you're going to find some research. This was a doctor that was writing the book of Luke, so you're going to find more research put into it. That's what he was accustomed to. And then the writings of Paul you find a lot more teaching. That's what he was. He was a, a Pharisee, the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, and so you're going to get a lot more teaching. When you get into the book of Hebrews, the author being unknown because he does not necessarily give to us who he is. If you were to read uh, many of the different books, you'd find that they introduce themselves, and you know who's writing uh, based on uh, their introduction of themselves being the one who is penning. Uh, but there's many people that suspect different things. So one of the most common uh, suspicions is that the Apostle Paul was the one who wrote, uh, uh, while others uh, believe that it could be someone else. Maybe um, maybe it was Apollos, maybe it was Barnabas. Uh, some people even attribute it to being a book that was originally written in Hebrew and then translated over to Greek by Luke. So there's a lot of conjecture in this. Uh, but there's a few things that we, we do have as certain. I have my suspicions, and I will leave you to develop your own suspicions on who the author of Hebrews is. But let me encourage you this way. If you come to a different conclusion than I come to, that's okay. All right? And so before we go splitting hairs and splitting churches over who wrote the book of Hebrews, let's just stop for a minute and remember that God wrote the Bible through men. So does it really matter at the end of the day whether it was Paul or whether it was Barnabas? God's the one that spoke these words and inspired the writing of his word. So let's just leave it at him. And as Origen himself said, only God knows. And that's enough for me. But there's a, a, a lot of uh, early church fathers who refer to this book. Origen referred to it. Clement of Alexandria referred to it. Cyprian referred to the book of... Uh, of Hebrews and quoted from it uh, substantially. Justin Martyr himself was uh, one who quoted from the book of Hebrews. If you were to pick up a lot of the early church fathers, you had, find quotes from the book of Hebrews, and so they accepted it as canonical, and so I think it's okay for us to accept it that way as well, which brings into the uh, question of the authority. Now, the authority of the book is uh, 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 the only thing that really questions the authority of the book of Hebrews is that of the authorship. Uh, the only other people who do uh, uh, take any other stance, uh, basically, there was, a, there was a faction of people who uh, desired to teach that the church had replaced Israel. 
And so they, per- they rejected the book of Hebrews because it did not go along with their personal belief structures. And so those, a lot of those early uh, uh, factions that, uh, that tried to teach that Israel was God's chosen people, but then the church took the place of that, they don't like the book of Hebrews being there because the book of Hebrews uh, kind of goes against that idea uh, and that teaching. But when, as far as when the book was written, we can have a good suspicion, very strong understanding that it was pre-70 A.D. The reason we would say it was before 70 A.D. is because Titus, the emperor Titus, not Titus Curry, but the emperor Titus, uh, uh, destroyed the temple in 70 A.D. And as you read through the book of Hebrews, you're going to find a lot of allusions to temple practice, and the, the verbiage is used in the present tense as if it was still going on that day. And so we have a good idea that this was written prior to 70 A.D. and the destruction of the temple. Uh, again, this uh, helps uh, build a case for the authority. The only real question, again, being that of its authorship, the message and the doctrine that are that is found here in the book of Hebrews in no way contradicts anything else in all of Scripture, which is a big test when they were looking at whether a book should be included in the canon or not. Does it contradict? Does it agree with? And this is something that we're going to be looking at a little bit more here in just a moment. As far as the audience, doubtless it was written to Christians of a Jewish background. Uh, very, very little doubt as far as the audience is concerned. Uh, some have even stated that it could have, like I said, originally been written specifically to the Hebrew. Um, but then the application uh, for the purpose of the writing, uh, it could be summed up uh, this way. Uh, Coleridge himself uh, Coleridge himself said that Romans reveals the necessity of Christianity while Hebrews reveals it's the superiority of Christianity. And I start off with questions often, and, and uh, well, I'll tell you what, let's bring that question up on the screen. I put things out of order for it, I'm sorry. Uh, but the question basically comes down to this this morning, is God's Word sufficient? And that's where we want to kind of focus in today as far as verse number two. We're going to try to do the best that we can to answer this question of if God's word is sufficient. Again, Coleridge, uh, he, he is quoted by saying, Romans reveals the necessity of Christianity while Hebrews reveals the superiority of Christianity. And now I know that that's a very bold statement. I understand that especially in a day and age where you shouldn't make those type of claims, right? It's one thing to say, I choose this way of thinking. It's another thing for me to say, this is the right way of thinking. No, and, and, and many times Christianity is given the raspberry of, well, you all are intolerant and, and you, don't, uh, you don't like what other people have to say. And, and well, the Buddhist would never say something like that. On the contrary, the Buddhist would say something like, like that. The Buddhist, if you were to talk to them about your walk in Christianity and you'd say, should I abandon Christianity and join Buddhism? They would probably, a devout Buddhist would probably say something to the effect of, no, you don't necessarily need to do that, but rest assured, you're going to come back and you're going to do this again. Well, then why not abandon ship and join your way of thinking? Because they want to still have their cake and eat it too. But I want you to understand no matter what direction a person takes as far as their uh, their religious uh, stint, 
Uh, no matter what uh, what side of uh, uh, of an argument you may find yourself, at some point in game, every single belief system is exclusive. The Christian is exclusive in the sense of Jesus is the only way. Now, understand something. I don't have a lot of patience, and I don't have a lot of time for these namby-pamby preachers who are not willing to simply put it out there and say, yes, Jesus is the only way, because how unloving can a person be as to say, well, you can pick whatever you want. No, my friend, I'm sorry. Jesus is the only way. There is no other substitute, none whatsoever. No, we cannot just choose and pick uh, whichever uh, one makes us feel good for the moment. We must be honest. We must come to understanding that there is one truth. If I tell you today that it is cloudy outside, but Brother John comes in and says, no, it's clear as a bell outside, we cannot both be right. Either it's cloudy or it's clear as a bell. There is no, uh, I, I can't tell you that the walls are a grayish brown, but somebody else say, no, they're turquoise, and both of us be right. There has to be a truth. Truth is absolute. This whole idea of relativism, this idea that, that you can have a truth and I can have a truth, is, is, as one of my former professors used to say, hogwash. Now, think about it for just a moment. Christ's claim was, no man can come to the Father but by me. That was Christ's statement himself. That was in the red letters. So for one of his followers to say, no, you can get there another way, is to contradict Christ himself. And let all men be liars, but let God remain true. You cannot have, and, and I've been told, I've, I've uh, had people argue on it, no, 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 there is no such thing as absolutes. Do you realize that that statement in and of itself is absolute? So for someone to tell me there's no such thing as an absolute, my first question to them would be, is that an absolute statement or is that relative? There is absolute truth. And the question is, as Romans deals with the necessity of Christianity, Hebrews then brings out, you need to understand this message is superior to all the other ones. We're going to look at several different things, but... Before we go any further, understand the way the book of Hebrews was written. Many of the epistles that you read are read in letter form, and as we read them, we kind of get an idea that, uh, that this was a letter written from one person to the next person. But the book of Hebrews is written a little differently. The book of Hebrews is a whole lot more homiletic in the way it was written. It is almost as if, uh, if you've ever read uh, some of the uh, uh some of the classic sermons, such as Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. If you've, if you've ever picked up a, a book with uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones's uh, uh, sermons and you were to read through the sermon, this is the way Hebrews is kind of read. It's written very sermon-like. It's almost like someone just penned the message from someone else. An example of that you find in the very first verse there where it says, God who at sundry times and in divers manners. There's alliteration in that that you lose in the English, but in the Greek you have two different words here, polymeros, which means in many times, and polytropos, 
which means in many ways. Right out of the gate, you have this alliteration. So there's this idea uh, of this actually being more of a message that may have been preached, and maybe what we have in the book of Hebrews here is the actual sermon. Quite a, quite a long sermon, approximately 13 chapters. I don't know that you all want me to preach that way. But we're going to break it up as best we can into five different uh, uh, subcategories. We're going to have, number one, the superior message, which we'll see in chapter number one. We'll see the superior messenger, chapters number one through four. We'll see the superior priesthood, chapters number four through seven, the superior covenant, chapters eight through ten. And then finally, the superior belief, or I'm sorry, the superior benefits and duties, chapters number, that should be 11 through 13, not 1 through 13, my apologies. But I want to point out just a few things here, and we're going to get into the meat of the message this morning. Notice right off the bat the very first word that is given to us in uh, our text, God. Now, the way the uh, Greek words it is you have those two words for in many different times and in many different ways, God revealed. But regardless, the way it's worded here with the definite article the before God, it's, there's no question as to whether it's trying to prove the existence of God or not. Now, I want to make this statement uh, clearly as best I can. The Bible never sets out to prove the existence of God. There's many, there are many people today that uh, they do the best that they can to try to prove the existence of God empirically. They try to prove Him scientifically. And I'm not against any of that. Please don't misunderstand me. But trying to prove that God exists is really a fool's errand. Because the Bible lets us know the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so for someone to walk into, uh, into existence and to look around and say, this is all just an accident, there's something, there's something not right. The Bible never sets out to try to prove the existence of God. It simply states the obvious, God. I love how Genesis 1 starts out, in the beginning, God. I love the way John starts out, in the beginning, was the Word. There's no argument as to whether God existed. So here we have God just kind of coming out, and uh, we see something in the very first verse there. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. From Adam to Moses, you have about 2,500 years, and then from Moses to Malachi, you've got another 1,100 years. And so after these 3,600 years, it was still only a partial revelation that was given and understood uh, by, the, uh, by the Jewish people. Then there was a 400-year uh, period of silence, and then when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law. So notice there, real quickly, how God has spoken. He says in verse number one, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, but, notice verse two, hath in these last days spoken unto us by the Son. Uh, this, this idea that it's by the Son, the, 
I used a term just a little bit ago, definite article, and here's the Greek for the day. Um, you know me, I'm a language nerd. I, I enjoy studying these kind of things. I get stuck up on a two-letter word very quickly and easily. There's no def, indefinite article in Greek. And so, for example, Gabriel is the son of Andy Lake. However, Danielle is a daughter of Andy Lake. Do you notice that? I've got two daughters. There's no, there's not a definite before Danielle, but I only have the one son. There is a definite. And so when you read in the Greek, you find some definite and indefinite articles. You do not find, I'm sorry, indefinite articles. And so John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, was with God. The word was the God, not a God. Despite what the New World Translation wants to get you to believe, a is not in the original Greek. You will not find the indefinite article. I'm sorry. The God, not a God. As you go down through here, you do not find in verse number two, hath in these last days spoken to us by his son. The definite article is not in there. And I want you to understand why. There's a word that is often overlooked in our English language. It's one of the, the top 25 most common words used in English is that two-letter word, by. By. It's the Hebrew N, or I'm sorry, not the Hebrew, the Greek N, Epsilon Nu, and it can literally be translated this way, as. In the Old Testament days, you had God speaking to us by the prophets. Here's what God would do. God would holler down and he'd talk to uh, Jonah, Jonah, I need you to go talk to Nineveh, and I need you to tell Nineveh something on my behalf. But when it comes to Jesus, he did not do it that way. He came himself to deliver the message. So when it says that God came and spoke to us by his son, it is this Greek word N, which can be translated through his son, or he was the son speaking. So God himself is revealed here as the son. This is not just simply saying that God gave Jesus a message and then Jesus conveyed the message. No, 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 no. God himself stepped into existence and proclaimed the message. This is important for us to understand before we go any further in this book. It's putting it right out in the very beginning. Jesus is God. We can't miss that. The message was God's message. It was the Son's message. You're going to note those two different imperatives, God and God spoke. The Bible never seeks to to prove the existence, but also in that, God spoke. You'll see that in the verse number two, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. There is a, a definitive understanding of this. The wording gives a finality of the message being proclaimed. That's important. Today, there are many people who try to set out to give you a new revelation from God. There is no new revelation. None. So if you got someone standing up in uh, uh, some group saying, hey, I've got a new thing from the, from the Lord. This is new. No, just go ahead and pump the brakes right there. There is no new 
Revelation. Christ is the completed fulfillment of God's word. As we look through here, sadly, many today are looking for some form of religious experience. Many are looking for some experience beyond the sufficiency of Christ. Can I let you know something, beloved? As, as much as I can, uh, as much love and as much concern as I can muster, Christ is enough. I've, I've heard people through the years say things like, well, I don't like to go to your style of church. I just don't feel like I'm actually going to church unless I'm in some sort of Gothic cathedral. Can I, can I let you in on something? God is not worshipped based on where you are. And so when we have to look and we have to attribute some form or some type of right or some type of action, well, I, I know the word of the Lord says uh, that uh, Christ is sufficient, but I also need, no, 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 just stop. We don't need to add anything to it. C.S. Lewis referred to it in his book on the screw, the screw tape letters. He referred to it as Christianity and. Don't let them be satisfied with Christ. Make them desirous of something extra. So I, I, I'm a Christian and I tithe. I'm a Christian and a church member. I'm a Christian and I, I have been baptized. I'm a Christian to read my Bible. And, and, and that's what makes me right before the Lord. No, 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 my friend. The only thing that makes you acceptable before God is Jesus Christ. That is it. We cannot go and add anything extra to it. Well, well, I, I know Jesus forgave me of my sins, and I know that I know that He has a uh, He is He is paid for it. He is He is the propitiation. He is the atonement. We can come up with all the big words we want, but once we start saying, "But I also need to pray, and and I also need to uh, to to give money," and 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 I no, just stop. He is sufficient. He is all we need. I do not work in order to gain. I work because of what I have gained. There's a big difference there. Not satisfied with Christ and the sufficiency of Christ, but they're looking for an experience to make it all full. Some in the holiness movements, they desire a, a specific gifting and they're not happy unless they're, they're gifted with a certain thing. Well, I, I've had people tell me, well, you're not saved if you don't speak in tongues. Can I tell you that's a lie straight from the pit of hell? Don't, don't believe that. We can get into a conversation over tongues and over whether or not uh, that's a, a, a dead gift or still a living gift. That, that's a whole different topic. But let me help you with something. Christ is enough. I don't have to have the other. I don't have to have all the extras. Continuing in this, I want you to see something before we go any further here. It says in verse number two, hath in these last days spoken to us by his son. All other voices should only agree or remind us of Jesus' words. 
Nothing can ever add to Christ's message, contradict Christ's message, or detract from Christ's message, or for heaven's sake, never let anything try to correct Christ's message. I've heard uh, there, there are many who would uh, give you down this, this word. Well, the, the Jewish people had the truth, and then they lost it. Then the Christians had the truth. And so now we have the corrected truth. No. No. Christ is sufficient. I don't need any extra books. I've got the Word of God. And if God is powerful, now think about this for just a minute. If God is powerful enough to step into his own creation, if God is powerful enough to start the world into existence, to just simply speak and it was so, if God is powerful enough to establish time and space, if he is powerful enough for that, do we not think for just a moment that God is going to make sure that his word is not tainted and in some way, shape, or form protected from having to be corrected? I believe that his word has been preserved. And I don't think think that they had to come up with a new book. I don't think God had to come to earth and and, and inscribe some things on some golden plates in order for us to have his word. I think what we have is the honest, true, living word of God protected. You can pick up your Hebrew or your Greek uh, text, and you can find back to the original what was said. It has not been ruined. Please. Please. Let's not go down the the road of, well, you know, it was into this, and then into this, and into this, and into this. And just, just what? Stop. God preserved it. And I believe with all my heart that we have his word. No need for correction. But I want you to now go to the text that we read just a little bit ago. Brother Dale read for us in Matthew chapter number 17. Keep your, uh, put a bookmark or something here in the book of Hebrews. Go back to Matthew chapter 17. And I, and I want you to notice, I want you to notice something that is uh, often just kind of glanced by. I'm going to wait until the sound of pages stops because I want to make sure everybody's there. I love the sound of pages. love that sound. You don't get much sound from... Well, you do get some sound from that, but it's not the one you want. All right. Matthew chapter number 17. We read this earlier. I'm not going to read the entirety, but this is where the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was uh, uh, transfigured. And then... uh, Look at verse 4. It says, Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. Now notice what Peter's doing in this passage here. 
Here he is, and he is, uh, he is, uh, eyewitness of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. They're one, he's one of the only ones that got to witness this. And as he's standing there, and as he's watching this, he is, he is just awed, and he is blown away, and he says to Jesus, man, it's a good thing we came. How about we do this? Let, let us build three different tabernacles. Let us build three different structures, houses, tents, dwelling places. Places for us to worship. We'll make one that is for Moses. And we'll make another one that is for Elias. And we'll make a third one that is for you. And here's what Peter was saying. It's a good thing that he was, I mean, he, he had good intention, I believe. But here's what Peter was saying. Your message is just as important as Moses and Elijah. And then notice what took place. While he yet spake, verse 5, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Don't overlook that. Sometimes the only thing that is attributed to this passage is just God putting his stamp of approval on Jesus. No, 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 no. Peter's saying, your message is just as valuable as Moses's and Elijah. And God said, no. That's my son. That's the one I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then in verse 6, and when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. Do you see it? Peter's saying, just as much value as the other guys. God is saying, more valuable. They were prophets. That's my son. They gave you a partial message. He is the complete message. They told you only some. He's the fulfillment. Hear him. This does not usurp God's word in the Old Testament by any stretch of the imagination. What it does is it lets us know that as they made their way through time, and it says, going back into into Hebrews, it says, God, at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He finalized it in his son. You see, the prophets, we had in those prophets, we had men that were used by God. But in Jesus, we have God the son. In the prophets, there were many prophets. But in Jesus, there's only one son. 
And in the prophets, you had partial and incomplete message. God would give them a little bit and then a little bit more and then a little bit more and then a little bit more. And the prophets, when they were seeing things, they were being shown things by God. They only got little glimpses and they got parts of it. But then in Christ, you don't have parts of the message anymore. You have the full message. Christ is the completion, the sufficiency. All other voices should only agree with Jesus, never contradict, because he is far superior. Coming to the end of this, I want to try to bring everything to the conclusion this way. When we read God at sundry times and in divers manners spake in, uh, to the, uh, in time past to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken us, unto us by his Son. I want you to understand the Bible that you hold in your hand is complete. I don't have to add a third testament. No, I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. I don't have to seek out what the Pope may say. This is enough. And as I've said many times in the past, and and my deacons, man, they, they have carte blanche freedom. The rest of you have the same freedom. If there's ever anything, any time that I add to or take away from this word of God, you have not just the right, you have the responsibility to charge the pulpit. Remove me. The moment this becomes insufficient is the moment we have just crossed over into heresy. This is enough. This is enough because he is enough. The opening verses of the book of John say it this way. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. If you were to read that in the original Greek, like I said, there's no indefinite article. So it's not a God, and the transliteration of the passage was, and God was the Word. I believe with all my heart, if you could take these pages and what was written therein and give them flesh and blood, you would see Jesus Christ. That's enough for me. I hope it's enough for you. Because he's enough for me. And I hope he's enough for you. Been trying to give some I will statements. Let's go through these quickly. Number one, I will accept that Jesus is God. That's a big statement. A lot of people will not do that. You may think, well, that's kind of elementary, isn't it, Pastor? you wouldn't believe how many times I've had to have that conversation. Yes, Jesus is God. Second, I will accept that his message is perfect, complete, 
and superior to all other messages. That is an act of the will, do you understand? That is a choice that you will make. And from this day forward, I'm accepting that his message is perfect. I don't have to add to it. I I don't pick and choose. I don't delete from it. Well, I don't like this verse over here. I don't like this passage over here. I don't like what this has to say over here. That's not yours to decide. And so I will choose to accept that his message is perfect and complete. Third, I will reject all who would edit God's superior message. That's a tough one, isn't it? I will reject all who would add to God's message. I will reject all who would take away from God's message. I would reject all who try to correct God's message. You know, listen, there's nothing, nothing, nothing that needs to be changed. It's right. It's perfect. It's complete. How do you view the word of God? What's your view of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to accept him and him alone? And to reject all other theories, ideas? Is he sufficient? Is his word enough? If it's not, then you're not following him. You're finding, you're following the additions. Jesus says, no man comes to the Father but by me. So where are you heading? Are you heading towards your own ideas? Are you heading towards some religion? Are you heading towards something that makes you feel good? Or are you heading toward God. He's found right here. Nowhere else. Father, thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. We don't need a a doctorate in philosophy to find you. We simply need to open your word and read it. Father, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that When the fullness of time came, you did send forth your son, made of a woman, made under the law. Father, with all of that, you did reveal yourself to us completely and fully. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we enter into this time of invitation. Lord, there are many, many today that, Maybe they do not know you as Savior. Maybe they've been working to earn salvation because someone else told them that's what they needed to do or some other book told them that. But Father, help them to see, Lord, this morning that you have done it all and it's taken care of. Father, we pray that Many today would quit trying to find sufficiency in someone's explanation or someone else's ideas, but that they would find Christ enough. 
We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.